It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. Hey there, listeners. It's Curious City intern Laura Pavin. Recent events in Charlottesville have reignited a conversation about historic monuments. So we're replaying a story we produced in 2015. You'll hear our reporter Maribah talk about installing a plaque last year. She means October 2014. Hi, I'm Maribah Knight, and I'm going to answer a history question. It's not one of those trip down memory lane kind of questions, where the answer's easy and we're all glad to find it. This history is dark, and it's strange, and in the end, we all feel that we should know it, even if maybe we don't want to. Our question starts with Uptown resident Chris Rowland. So I was at work one day, and we were just talking, um, the Civil War came up, and one of the guys had mentioned that uh, there was actually a prison camp in the actual city of Chicago, and nobody could even remember what the name of it was. So he Googled it, but... Not a whole lot that you can kind of find readily available. It was troublesome to find anything. So he sent us a question that went like this. Why was there a prison camp in Chicago during the Civil War? And why did so many people die there? What happened to it? Well, there was a Civil War camp. It was just south of downtown Chicago, where the Bronzeville neighborhood is today. It was called Camp Douglas. And it was, in fact, one of the deadliest prison camps in the Civil War. Together, Chris and I learned why the prison camp was so notorious. But we were also intrigued by why it was so hard to find answers in the first place. I mean, how could a deadly prison camp practically disappear from Chicago's collective memory? We found that over the past 150 years, some people have actively tried to forget about Camp Douglas. But that may be changing. Let's start with the camp's conditions. Some historians call Camp Douglas, quote, 80 acres of hell. But it didn't start out that way. Most people thought that the Civil War would not happen, that there would be some kind of compromise. So at first, Camp Douglas was just a place where Union soldiers from around the region enlisted and trained. But Ted Karamansky, a Civil War historian at Loyola University, says that changed when a problem popped up on the battlefield. In early 1862, the Union captured 5,000 Confederate soldiers along the Tennessee-Kentucky border. Karamansky says it was a big victory for the North. But they had all these prisoners. What are they going to do with them? There was no plan whatsoever. Until they remembered something. Well, we have these training camps, and most of the soldiers have been trained already, so why don't we send them up to the training camps? And they sent them to Camp Butler in Springfield, uh, and they sent them up to Camp Douglas in Chicago. And to start off, prison life at Camp Douglas wasn't so bad. I mean, at first there was no difference between where the prisoners were and then where the few remaining soldiers who were being trained were. I mean, they barely even had any kind of a wall up. Uh, And so some of the prisoners would just wander off and say, hey, let's go downtown and get a drink. (laughs) And uh, and gradually, you know, the police would bring them back and say, hey, boys, stay here. But the war raged on, and Camp Douglas took on more prisoners. At its peak, roughly 12,000 soldiers were crammed into barracks meant to hold just 6,000 men. To make matters worse, there was the bathroom situation. In the fall and winter, the camp turned into a giant pit of mud and sewage. These were the things that made the camp a source that generated disease. 
uh, particularly dysentery and typhoid fever. And if that wasn't miserable enough, the food, well, it got scarce. And one union officer had a very nice pet terrier. And uh, unfortunately, the, the terrier disappeared. And the officer posted a note saying, well, anybody who can find my dog will receive a reward. And Confederates posted a note next to it. The dog was meat, and we're the ones who ate it. (laughs) When the war ended in 1865, at least 4,000 Confederate soldiers had died. The camp was closed and torn down that spring, sold off as surplus or carted off by scavengers. By the end of the summer, the ground was dry, (laughs) and so... This became one of the favorite places to play this new sport the soldiers had learned during the Civil War, known as baseball. Camp Douglas, prison camp to baseball field. Karamansky says in a way, Chicago needed that. Soldiers came back from the war, and uh, they'd lost a lot of their youth. And playing baseball did help erase some of the memories of the war. Beginning just a few years after the Civil War, Camp Douglas was practically scrubbed out of Chicago's collective memory. Well, almost. There have been efforts to memorialize the prison and those who died inside of it, but for almost every effort to remember, there's been an effort to forget. You can get a sense of this tug-of-war for yourself at a place about five miles from the former Camp Douglas. I meet our question-asker, Chris Rowland, there at Chicago's Oakwood Cemetery to meet our guide, In fact, this guide hopes to someday build a Camp Douglas museum. I'm David Keller, uh, managing director of the Camp Douglas Restoration Foundation. Basically, about from this point on, you're probably walking on Confederate bodies. There are more Confederates buried here than anywhere north of the Mason-Dixon line. So how, how did the bodies end up from the other locations okay. to here? Uh, they moved them here because no other cemetery would have them. Oh, wow. Uh, the uh, famous cemeteries, Rose Hill Cemetery and, and uh, others, refused to accept Confederate prisoners. Why would they not accept Confederate prisoners? Because they were Confederates. That is, Illinois was a Union state, and Confederates had been the enemy, and even more, an enemy on the side of slavery. Still, Even if the soldiers were placed in a mass grave here, they did get a memorial called Oakwood's Mound, complete with a pillar. It's like, what, 30 foot tall? It's gigantic. And it's beautiful right in the middle of the cemetery. There's, uh, you know, a bunch of cannons, some cannonballs around. But this memorial has attracted its fair share of controversy. In 1895, the night before it was dedicated, someone vandalized it. Shortly after that, someone erected a competing memorial to honor Southerners who resisted secession. And in 1992, an African-American alderman blocked a proposal to make the mound a local historic landmark. He told the Chicago Tribune that he'd, quote, rather forget the whole thing, the whole thing being the Civil War. There's no doubt that the war's connection to slavery and race is one reason it's hard to find much local history about Camp Douglas, especially at the camp's former site in what became Bronzeville a mostly African-American neighborhood. Take what happened with Ernie Griffin back in 1992. He was a black man who ran a funeral home that sat right smack on the former campsite. Griffin learned that his grandfather had enlisted in the Union's African-American infantry at Camp Douglas. Professor Karamansky knew Griffin, and he tells the story. And so uh, Mr. Griffin uh, erected a memorial there uh, to the Confederate soldiers who died. 
And from that memorial, he flew the Confederate battle flag. And people would rip down the Confederate flag, and Griffin would put it up again and again. It happened so many times that finally he took out an ad in the Chicago Daily Defender, the African-American newspaper in Chicago, and simply explained to them, look, you know, I make my living here uh, trying to memorialize and honor uh, the dead of our community. And this is the place where other people died for beliefs that I don't agree with, but I honor the fact that this is where they passed. And he asked the community to respect that as well. Today, there's a small but official historic plaque marking Camp Douglas's site. It was just put up last October, largely because of the Restoration Foundation that, again, has eyes on the site for a museum. But it will take more than a plaque or even a museum to remember Camp Douglas. Any effort will need the help of history buffs for sure, but it will also need buy-in from local residents. And we meet some who make the case. Thanking you for the history that we heard, Father God. May it prick our hearts, may it get us busy learning our own history, Father God. Hello, I am Sherry Williams. I am founder and director of Bronzeville Black Chicago and Historical Society. We meet Williams at a Sunday service at Monumental Baptist Church in Bronzeville, where she's leading a discussion about sharing family histories in the black community. She tells us that for a lot of people, only one story has been told about Camp Douglas, the one about it being 80 acres of hell. And so those who push back look at maybe one segment of the history of Camp Douglas, and that is these were Confederate soldiers, they were prisoners of war, and so therefore they got the treatment that maybe they did deserve. But for Williams, other legacies are just as real. In her case, the legacies are personal. She's looked at death records, and she's discovered that one of the Southern soldiers who died at the camp happened to have owned William's direct ancestor. And this same ancestor, he was a former slave, and he had enlisted to fight for the Union's African-American infantry at, you guessed it, Camp Douglas. There is wider stories that uh, need to be expounded on. It's not one narrative, it's multiple narratives. So, one idea is that Camp Douglas could become one place to tell many stories. Here's how blacks participated in the Civil War, and here's how the prisoners of war came into Camp Douglas, lost their lives. This is the intersection between what we look at as the fight for freedom. In William's mind, choosing to forget what happened at Camp Douglas because of its darker roots, that can only hurt us, turn us blind to the suffering and to the humanity that existed on all sides over the fight for freedom. Many are the hearts that are weary tonight Wishing for the war to see Reporting for this story came from me, Maribyn Knight, with help from Logan Jaffe. Curious City was founded by Jennifer Brandel, WBEZ, Air and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. Hello again. A quick update on this story. The Restoration Foundation says it's still looking for a location for its Camp Douglas Museum. Right now, they've got their eyes on a new site slightly north of the original prison camp. And while I have you here, I have another announcement. If you're a Cubs fan, you might want to skip the next 30 seconds. This is for White Sox fans. You may have heard we're working on a story about the history of the White Sox logo. You know, that diagonal Old English SOX. 
We've heard a lot of stories about people's memories of seeing that logo for the first time in 1990, including our favorite from Mark Dorr, who liked it so much as a 10-year-old kid, he got permission from the White Sox to modify his bedroom carpet in the style of the logo. So we're collecting photos of White Sox logos in interesting or surprising places. Got a tattoo? We want to see it, assuming it's not inappropriate. Have you seen a White Sox hat or worn one someplace far from Chicago, like the Great Wall of China, Antarctica, outer space? Email your photos of White Sox logos in surprising locations or applications to CuriousCity at WBEZ.org or message us on social media. We'll be collecting our favorites and may include them in our story. Thanks! Next time on Curious City, high school is awkward enough. Could you imagine if yours required you to swim in the nude? Chicago Public High Schools did for more than 50 years. But the rules didn't apply to everyone. The girls get swimsuits and we didn't. It didn't make much sense to us. Yep, only the boys had to swim nude. And if you are a boy, it gets worse. The water temperature was always very cold. Mm-hmm. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.